Flip over if you would to First John. First John chapter five, and we, we will be taking a, a break from Galatians this morning for reasons I will explain in a moment. Um, but let's pray before we get into God's word. Uh, Father, your son's apostle John once wrote to the saints uh, in order that they could know that they had eternal life. We want to know that we have eternal life. And sometimes we doubt the efficacy of the blood of your son. Other times we question our election, forget your promises or neglect uh, your sweet means of grace. Sometimes the light of the indwelling Holy Spirit becomes dim and faint for us and clouded by our own affinity for sin. God, I ask that by your word and spirit and the sacrament to follow, you would help us to know that we have eternal life. Not by a confidence in our own staying power, but through a deep and abiding awareness that you preserve those who you call your own. And such we are by your grace. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. We stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. I'll read aloud if you would join me quietly. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Well, as you know, we normally go through books verse by verse, but we'll take a break this morning um, and, and study more topically the subject of perseverance of the saints and more as it pertains to our assurance and our subjective assurance or the, the, the sense of assurance that we have in light of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And this is a doctrine treasured by many and misunderstood by many and disbelieved by others. And so some call it once saved, always saved. Some It's the pea and tulip, uh, perseverance of the saints for others. And probably this is the best term is the preservation of the saints. But we all probably have an awareness of this doctrine. And as Calvinists, we cling especially tight to the doctrine. And really in its simplest form, it goes like this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. From Philippians 1.6 The regenerate man will never undergo spiritual death. The person united to Christ will never be severed from Christ. The elect person will never become not elect. And what a tre- treasure that, that doctrine is. We've been through some, I think, challenging books since I've arrived here a couple years ago. Hebrews, Jonah, First and Second Peter, Jude, Habakkuk, and now Galatians. And there's a common thread that I've noticed throughout, and really it's throughout the Bible. That's why it's through these books. But it is this exhortation, do not walk away. Do not walk away into error. 
I believe that as a preacher, one of my most important jobs is to convey those warnings to God, God's people in the time and place that He's placed me. That is, to warn you, to urge you to persist in the faith. As an example, last week we heard Paul say, For if I were still trying to be, please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Are still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's a hard saying and a hard warning for us to hear. And I turned that saying on us, saying, if we would be servants of Christ, we must strive to please Him rather than to please man by His gospel. So if in that sermon you felt like I was speaking directly at you, I was. I want you to feel the weight of that. I want you to look inside your own heart and to identify who is the real Lord of your life. And I want you to put that question on the table. Am I really serving Christ? The end game of that is not guilt, but repentance and turning to Christ in faith that He He would help us by His Spirit to serve Him. So the purpose in taking a break from Galatians this morning is twofold. First is the practical one, is that I drove to Montana this week and it needed something a little less rigorous exegetically. Um, but second, I, I recognize that these warnings, like the one I just gave, uh, can get us down on ourselves. As we see our own failures and shortcomings, we can start to question our standard before God. And sometimes rather than being the sweet conviction of the Holy Spirit as it's meant to be, it becomes more of an accusation from the devil. And that's the last thing I want. So this morning I hope that you will be encouraged as we study this doctrine of assurance and perseverance of the saints. And that if you are truly in Christ, you will know even just a little bit more that you do have assurance in Christ's blood. So I want to begin this morning by examining these things. Uh, and I want to start with what the Puritans would call obstacles. Things that get in the way, that hinder us from believing the perseverance of the saints, from believing that we can have assurance. Now we could, if I were a true Puritan, I would have 20. But I have three, I have three for this morning. <laughs> three or four. I can't remember. The first is that we see darkness in ourselves. We see darkness in ourselves. Uh, Paul told Timothy, in latter times, some will depart from the faith. So, what is there to say that I'm not going to be one of those people? How do I know I'm not going to depart from the faith? Nothing I can identify in myself gives me confidence that, that I won't be one of those people. In fact, I can identify things in me that would incline me to think I could totally be a Judas. There are real dark places within my soul. And now if you feel the same way that I do about the dark places within your soul, I think that you're well on the road to assurance. The person who says, I could never betray Christ, that that person is in the most danger. If I could fall away, I absolutely would fall away. 
But assurance is, is not a confidence in the work of my own ability to stand strong, say, in, in the face of persecution or in the face of doubt. But it's a confidence in the work of God's grace in my life. If you're a person who loves the doctrines of grace, uh, I commend to your reading the Canons of Dort. Uh, they, they, they get less pressed than the other Reformed confessions, but they're wonderfully rich and pastoral and are immensely helpful. And if you struggle with your own assurance or to articulate the doctrine of preservation of the saints to your friends and family or with any of the other five points, I, I recommend uh, digging into the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort, just as a brief summary, were a response to the Arminians or the Remonstrants who brought these five sort of qualms against the, the Calvinistic system. And, and this is their response to these Remonstrants. So on the article of uh, the preservation or perseverance of the saints, in Article 2, under this, it says, by reason of these, by reason of these, that is remaining sin, by re- reason of these remains of indwelling sin, and also because of the temptations of the world and of Satan, those who are converted could not persevere in that grace if left to their own strength. But God is faithful, who having conferred grace, mercifully confirms and powerfully preserves them therein to the end I love that word preserves I, I first heard that I think with Sproul I think we all have but it's here in the, in the canons of Dort he preserves them therein to the end so if you are saying to yourself I am not good enough to be confident of my eternal destiny that's as it should be <laughs> Get your eyes off yourself and onto the grace of Christ. That, that dark guest within should grieve us and we should labor to, to evict him at every opportunity. But our preservation is not a, con, a condition based on our personal holiness. Identifying the darkness is the first step in causing us to look outside of ourselves for assurance of salvation. God is faithful to preserve sinners. A second obstacle. The question inevitably arises, I think, in each one of us. What about all those people I know who seem to have fallen away from grace? We see people fall away. How many times have we witnessed in our family and friends people who seem to have a firm grasp of the gospel, maybe even bear much fruit, a missionary, a pastor, just somebody we respect and look up to, and they fall away. The, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is very tidy and good systematic theology. But, but to affirm something of tr- as true, in, in, to affirm it in reality, it's not just s- theoretical or systematic. It has to be true in, in practice, in reality. So what do we do with these people who fall away? Do they definitively prove the doctrine of perseverance untrue? And it's very painful for us when we see this happen. And I think it should hurt. 
Sometimes we get desensitized or numb to it. But to be cavalier or jaded about apostasy is not an appropriate response. Well, well, the Bible tells us to expect it. I can't do anything about it. I'm just not going to get too sad about it. Yes, we should expect it, but apostasy should break our hearts. A covenant member rejecting the Savior is as tragic a thing as this world has to offer. And the practical fruit of apostasy is always painful as well. A husband leaving his family because he's selfish. Adultery, divorce, a child living in sin, separated from the body of Christ. Division in the church. Apostasy yields a bumper crop of of toxic fruit. And, and, And more sad and more offensive to those in the family of God is that they are trampling all over the blood of Christ as they walk out the door. So yes, this happens, but it should not shake our assurance because the covenant community is a mixed community. Jesus taught us that the kingdom of heaven includes wheat and it includes tares. John tells us in chapter 2 of 1 John that those who go out from us were never really of us. So don't let that shake your assurance. If a person walks away and, and stays away... It's not that he lost his salvation, it's that he never had it to begin with. And we'll see more of this in a few minutes. Now there are um, some texts that cause us to question the doctrine of perseverance. Um, And that's our, our third obstacle this morning, is that some texts do give us pause. One, one such text, and I'll ask you to turn there, is Hebrews 10, um, 23 through 31. This is a text that makes us think for a moment. The author to the Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, beginning in verse 23, uh, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's striking. I would typically apply that last phrase. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God to people who aren't in this room, to to unbelievers. But notice what he says right before. The Lord will judge his people. He seems to be saying here, make sure to persist, to, to stir one another up and encourage one another, and do not fail to meet together. 
Why? Because those are the things that God has given, His means of grace to help us persist in the faith, to not fall away. And the person, he says, who has received a knowledge of the truth but persists in unrepentant sin can expect judgment because he spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant. So it says right here, Christians can walk away, right? Am I misreading? How would you answer that question as a proponent of the doctrines of grace if somebody asks you? Or maybe a better question, how do you apply this text to your own walk? Can you be one of these people who falls away? Is it possible? This may sound strange at first, but I think it's true that the answer has to be yes, in a sense. I can become such a person. You may be saying this is supposed to be about assurance. How are you assuring me of assurance? See, our our perception of God's preserving work in the lives of Christians is often very mechanical, very formulaic, and, and maybe a bit mystical. It's like God is the supply of electricity which keeps my motor spinning no matter what I do. And and we can completely neglect the means of grace and go on sinning because I have a personal connection to my my, my power supply is plugged in. But did you notice here, he, he prescribes means for sustaining the confession of our hope, for not falling away. He says, meeting together, encouraging one another, stirring one another up for good works. That word he uses for meet together is an interesting word. It's epi-synagogo or synagogue. You hear the word synagogue. The, the word really is about a formal gathering. Do, do not neglect the formal assembly of the saints. He's talking here about the means of grace, I believe. God uses means to sustain, to sustain His people. Uh, and, and I was reading something this week that was describing how the standard evangelical mindset is one of immediate connection to God. That is, without mediation. But we have a mediated perception of our relationship to God. That is, He's given us means of grace to sustain us. It's like a mountain climber. He, he needs calories and he needs hydration he needs something to sustain him so the purpose of these warning passages is not to communicate that if we don't do the right things we'll lose our salvation rather they're meant to instruct us in the ways that God has given to sustain our faith and they're meant to spur us on to persist in the faith so a, a, a true regenerate Christian will be will heed these warnings and will be spurred on by them. I mean, to me, it's like the mountain climber. The, the most obvious admonition you could give a mountain climber is drink water. Even the most experienced climber can forget something so simple. He, he, but you don't want to be dehydrated. You don't want altitude sickness. Those things will kill even the best mountaineer. Drink water. It seems like a silly admonition, but it could save his life. 
Likewise, it seems silly to admonish the Christian of the most basic thing. Go to church, partake of the means of grace. But it can save our lives. Admonitions are for the benefit and sustenance of the believer. Now, in the mechanics of our systematic theology, we know God will preserve his elect. So, the, the person regenerated by the Holy Spirit won't become, uh, become unregenerate. So, it, are these hollow, superficial warnings? Uh, I'm saved, so I don't have to listen. These are for unbelievers. <laughs> And to answer that, I think we have to return again to the, the idea of the wheat and the tares. The covenant community has always been a mixed community, true and false confessors. So this warning serves to warn not just them, but the whole covenant community, of which no one but God can discern individual hearts. So for some, these texts will be a warning they never heeded, and it will compound their judgment. For others, it will be that splash in the, in the face of, of cold water that they needed. God's grace to them, to sustain them. I think you'll find that's true of all these warning passages in Scripture. They serve to sustain the elect, convert the unconverted covenant member, and condemn the false confessor. They do not stand in conflict with any of the promises of God to preserve those who are His. And in fact, there, there are means to that end. So having looked at a few of these obstacles now, uh, to our assurance, let's consider some of the sources of our assurance. Again, these could be many, if I were a true Puritan. Uh, the first is election. Uh, when I first began to understand the doctrines of grace, I'm sure you can relate, it was a struggle. It was a struggle on an emotional level. How, how is it fair that God could choose some and not others, right? Or it's a struggle on an intellectual level. What are the mechanics of this? How does divine sovereignty relate to human responsibility? But I think if God's decree of election is merely a philosophical exercise, we're missing out on the warmth and the comfort that the doctrine of election provides. Ephesians says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. We're, we're adopted, we're members of God's family because He set His love on us from the foundation of the world. So, so the question we have to ask ourselves when we are like, I, I don't understand, I don't know if I'm actually saved, is will I, am I able to change the eternal love of God? Peter began his first letter by addressing the saints as elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. God did not foreknow us in the sense of looking down the corridors of time to see who would righteously choose Him, but in, in the intimate sense that, that before I was ever born, He knew me and loved me and chose me. Before I could do anything good to earn His favor, He placed His love on me. And that's a seal which cannot be broken. We know well the golden chain of redemption, Romans 8, 
29-30 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So, where in that golden chain can we identify a weak link? That one link where if I screw it up, it's going to break and I'm not going to make it to heaven. Paul is so certain of the sturdiness of the chain that he speaks in the past tense. Even glorification is as good as done. Those whom he foreknew and predestined, he glorified. It's certain. Of course, we have a great many sins, and they grieve the Father. The Confessions, the the Westminster Confession, the Canons of Dort, they speak of feeling the displeasure of God as a result of sin. Our experience of grace may be removed for a time, but he, He will not allow His children to go on perpetually in unrepentant sin. He will always bring us back. So God's sovereign decree of election is such a warm and practical doctrine if rightly understood and applied. And we will sin against our Father, and that is sad. But no bad thing we will ever do will break the golden chain of redemption. We will not undo the love with which we have been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. I think the natural next question, of course, is that's great, election sounds good, but how do I know I'm elect? I can't peer into to eternity past to know. I think Scripture gives us evidences that will help us along um, to know that we have been called by God and evidences really of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. So first of all, we know of the internal testimony the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And it's something no one can see, which is why, even though I know you all very well, I preach as though it may be a mixed covenant community. I have to. I don't know your heart. I think we'll be shocked on Judgment Day on the one end of those people who we thought, there's no way. And they're counted with the sheep. And then those people we looked up to, and they're with the goats. But I think we can have confidence in in ourselves about our own standing with God. I think we can have that confidence and know for ourselves by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the person indwelt by the Holy Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit, knows he's been made a child of God. The Spirit comforts us. He reminds us of Christ when we are in doubt. The subjective experience of the Spirit, I think, can wax and wane uh, due to our own sins, our own doubts. And I think there's times when we know God's favor or sense God's favor less than other times. His presence may be turned away from us for a season, but in order to really to make us seek His face again, it's not a conditional love, rather it's a fatherly chastisement. 
The Bible also gives us several evidences which are more, more tangible, more visible in the believer, which we can observe within ourselves, and that will bolster our confidence that we are indeed of the elect. Uh, for one thing, he, he tells us that we become new men regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And there are fruits to that, fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do we exhibit these qualities? That's something we have to ask ourselves when we are making our calling and election sure. Do I love God and neighbor? Am I happy? Do I have joy in the Lord? Do I know peace with God? That, 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 does that translate to peace with men? Am I slow to anger? Am I willing to wait on the Lord? Am I kind and charitable to the people around me? Am I faithful in undertaking the duties to which God has called me? Am I gentle when I correct my brothers and sisters? Do I exhibit self-control over my emotions, over food, over sex, over entertainment? Now, if we are self-aware, I think we'll probably say, well, not that well. <laughs> but let's ask it another way. Do you exhibit these qualities at all? Looking back five years ago, do you exhibit them more than you did then? If you were converted late enough in life to remember your life beforehand, how radical is the shift between that life and this life? So I want to encourage you that if you have grown at all in the fruits, in the fruit of the Spirit, that that growth did not come from you. It came from somewhere outside of you. So the Spirit is working, and I, I want you to live in that assurance as you seek to grow more and more in it day by day. One uh, more major evidence that the New Testament gives, uh, which we can use to help us find our assurance, is that we love the brethren. Do you love the brethren? This is perhaps the major point of 1 John. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Do you love the brothers? Do you desire fellowship with the saints? This is different than asking, do you have Christian friends? I hear so often people like searching for churches based on demographics. Well, that church doesn't have anyone my age, so I can't go there. They don't have kids, so I can't go there. Well, there are no young Christian women there, so I can't go there. Well, I'm looking for a Christian community where I fit in. The problem is that the church is not a social cub. It's, it's a family. And the question is not, do I like the personalities of the people in the family of God? The question is, do I love the brethren? Do I miss their fellowship when I'm not with them? Do, do I want to live in relationship with them? Do I value their input and correction? Do I want to serve them, not just get something from them? Do I want to encourage them in the Lord as well as to be encouraged? We were talking about insurance some on our way back, my dad and I, because he knew I was preaching on this, and he asked me, well, does a person who, 
who, who's not involved with the church, who's not willing to be a member of the church, is he saved? I said, I don't know. I can't discern hearts. <laughs> but I can say based on this that, that they're not being obedient to what God has called them to be. And so I can give no confidence of assurance of salvation to a person who does not demonstrate they love the brethren. That may sound harsh, but in our day, Lone Ranger Christianity is rampant and we need to be connected to the local church. So if you are redeemed, you will love the brethren. If you find your love is cold toward Christ's people, perhaps we need to be examining our love for Christ because the one flows from the other. But as with the fruit of the Spirit, we'll never love the brethren to the degree that we should. So as we grow in love for one another through the days and years, we should be encouraged by any measure or any increase in that grace. Uh, There's so many other things I wanted to talk about, but I kind of ran out of time and space. I want to talk about the promises of God and assurance, but I'll leave that for your homework if you want to research the, the connection between the promises of God and our assurance. But the final uh, means for our insurance that we'll look to today is really the greatest promise that we have from God. And it's in the verses that we read at the beginning this morning, 1 John 5, 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He says in verse 11, this is the testimony. Whatever God testimony testifies is a promise, a sure promise that will come to pass. This is what God testifies, that God gave us eternal life. And thinking of assurance, I, I love to make the distinction between objective and subjective assurance. Subjective assurance, of course, is the degree to which we feel assured of our salvation. And as we've seen, this is kind of in constant flux. Sins and doubts affect our personal confidence. Uh, But we also have objective assurance that exists outside of us. And the more we can learn to um, base our subjective assurance on our objective assurance, the more steady it will be. I think verse 12 is my favorite verse in the Bible on assurance. Because it boils everything down to this simple objective sentence. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So at the end of the day, we need to ask ourselves, am I united to Jesus by faith? Do I have the Son? If you are united to Christ... You have all the assurance that you need. So ask yourself, do I have faith in Him for my salvation? Do I rest on His finished work? Or do I rest on my own works? Do I have a faith of action or just a faith of assent? Do the evidences of faith that we just talked about today appear in my life in some measure? If you can say yes to these questions, then you have Christ, by the instrument of God-given faith, you have the Son, and whoever has the Son has life.
I want to give the Apostle John the closing word this morning from John chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Uh, And I want you to hear these words almost as a creed of assurance. And if you believe them, echo them in your own mind and, and treat them as a creed through the week. So we will ask, Christian, what do you know to be true about your eternal life? Apostle John, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is our objective assurance. May we assure ourselves more and more in this confidence. Amen.